You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. I have the privilege of introducing to you a friend of mine and a friend of River City. Uh, pastor Caleb Drehosh is the pastor of Buffalo City Church in Jamestown, North Dakota, just a little bit that way. And he's here this morning to open up God's Word and to encourage us with it. So I'm going to invite him up. I'll let him introduce himself, but I wanted to introduce him to you and pray for him briefly and pray for our time. So uh, would you join me in prayer again? Father, we thank you for this day and we thank you for the privilege of gathering to worship. Thank you uh, for your servant uh, and our partner in the gospel, Caleb. Uh, thank you for Buffalo City Church uh, and their willingness to lend him to us this morning that we might be both challenged and encouraged through him uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit through your word. And so, God, we pray you'd use him to build up and encourage us as one larger shared body of Christ. Uh, thank you for the privilege of being here together. And uh, would you encourage him as he uh, opens God's word for us this morning. For your glory, we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Amen. Thank you. Good morning, church. I'm happy to be here this morning. Uh, like Jake said, my name is Caleb. I'm the pastor at Buffalo City Church. Um, a little bit about me is that I'm originally from the Twin Cities area, but I actually went to college here in Fargo at NDSU. Graduated in, yeah, woo. Um, graduated in 2008. Met my wife here while in college. We were married here, and then. Uh, we moved to Kentucky, and we lived there for six years. I went to the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary there, spent six years in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, and then God called us back to North Dakota, uh, much maybe to my wife's chagrin immediately. She, <laughs> she said, uh, is, are, are we really going back to North Dakota? And I said, yes, I think, I think the Lord is calling us to plant a church in North Dakota. Uh, and Jamestown was where the doors opened, uh, and, uh, and we moved there in 2015, planted actually just in a couple of weeks. Um, we'll be there for eight years, uh, eight years of congregational worship, Buffalo City Church in Jamestown, in Jamestown, North Dakota. The Lord's done a lot of, a lot of stuff there. Um, I, I could relay those things to you. I'm not going to do that this morning uh, because I could probably go on for quite a while, and I won't do that. Uh, my wife, Rebecca, and I have six kids. Uh, it's a bit of a wild weekend for us because this weekend represents three of our children's birthdays. Uh, we have uh, twin girls who just turned five, uh, and they had a birthday on the 12th, and then our second uh, oldest just turned nine, and he had a birthday on the 11th. And so we did all of our birthday parties yesterday. Um, the guys went disc golfing, and, uh, and we stayed out of the house while the girls had tea parties, and I cleaned up glitter for like uh, two hours last night. So... Uh, <laughs> And if you know me, I don't like glitter. It's my, the op, whatever the opposite of your love language is, that glitter is the opposite of my love language. Okay, well, that's enough about me. If you have any more questions about me, you can ask me, but I'm not here to talk about me. So would you take your Bible and turn to the book of Proverbs? The book of Proverbs this morning, Proverbs chapter 10. We're going to look at the first five verses. 
And as you open your Bibles this morning, I want to encourage you to keep them open on your lap. This is what we say to our people. We want to encourage you to keep it open on your lap, or if you're pulling it up on your phone, keep it open on your phone, because I'm convinced that this sermon, our time together in God's Word, is going to be far more enjoyable uh, if you are able to look down and reference the text that we're looking at together this morning. Proverbs chapter 10, beginning in, beginning in verse 1, and I'm going to read through verse 5 this morning. The Proverbs of Solomon. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the craving of the wicked. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. Jesus is wisdom incarnate. The New Testament tells us on several occasions that Jesus is the wisdom of God. And this is good news for us because when we look at the Old Testament, when we look at the book of Proverbs, uh, we see wisdom outlined, practical wisdom outlined for us. This is a good thing because we as people like to think that our own way, the way that we want to do things, is the best way to do things. But the Proverbs is continually clear that God's ways are far better than our ways. And so when we approach a text like this in, in the Proverbs, we see, we see very clearly that Jesus, the fulfillment of what's contained even in these five verses, is found in Jesus Christ. Now, the way that the Proverbs are laid out uh, is that we, um, we recognize that Jesus, even in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law and not to abolish it. When Solomon sat down to write the Proverbs, or most of the Proverbs, Solomon is the author of most of the Proverbs, he was thinking to himself, I'm, I needed to develop a homeschool curriculum for teaching my son the law. And so when we look together at the Proverbs, we see, we see the law clearly. Even in these five verses, if we consider just the Ten Commandments, the moral law, we see clearly that there are a handful of, of those commandments that are addressed right here, as Solomon writes to, to his son. Wise sons make glad fathers honor your father and mother. Uh, the Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but thwarts the craving of the wicked. This is addressing covetousness. Uh, gathering in the summer, again, or, or, a, or, or treasures gained by the wickedness, why wickedness do not profit. This is uh, addressing you shall not steal. So Solomon wants to give his son a clear picture of what the law is. Now, Solomon's dad, King David, said that he loved the law. And sometimes when we as Christians think about the law, we're not quite sure what to do with it. How do we live uh, according to God's law? Or what is the role of the law in the life of the believer? Now, the law is good. David says that he loves the law and that the law is good over and over and over again in the Psalms. And David wasn't on some, something when he, when he said that. That is, in fact, true. We should and we ought to love the law, and we ought to love the law, and we ought to love the way that the law is laid out in the Old Testament because it shows us very clearly that God's ways are better than our ways. 
Now, we're not justified by works of the law. We're not, we're not freed because we keep the law, but rather we are freed to keep the law. We are freed to live according to God's word and according to God's ways rather than, rather than our ways. And so the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, like in the book of Proverbs, finds its full fulfillment in Jesus. Again, because Jesus came to fulfill the law. And the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, when Jesus came into the world to die for sinners, he came also to free us to live lives of righteousness, to live according to God's ways and not according to our ways. And so, one of the reasons I'm here this morning, uh, one of the reasons I'm here this morning is because we want to, okay, so we're all part of a network of churches called Acts 29. Buffalo City Church is part of this network. River City Church is part of this network. Hope City Church in Bismarck is part of this network. Connections Church in Sioux Falls, South Dakota is part of this network. And we're connected together, and we this summer, the pastors, Jake and Jonathan and Chris and myself, all had a conversation. How can we be more intentional about thinking about planting churches together in the Dakotas? We have these nifty Yeti, uh, Yeti uh, thermos coffee container things that say Acts 29 Dakotas, that's fun, but that's not actually moving the, the needle on, on church planting. So what do we want to do? We actually want to be together and think together about church planting. And church, you guys, this morning, there are some things that you need to be thinking about as we, as we process what it means to plant churches together in the Dakotas. Because I think sometimes when we talk about church planting, what happens is we think, okay, so the pastor elders are going to identify a leader, then they're going to develop a residency, and then, and then the, they're going to train a leader, they're going to do some demographic studies, where are we going to plant? And then they're going to find where we're going to plant, and then we're going to go out and we're going to plant a church, and you guys are like, what can we do? We'll, we'll, we'll pray, great, and maybe we'll give a little money, great, and then that, that's it. But the reality of church planting and partnering together to plant churches in the Dakotas is having a culture of godliness within our churches that is actually worth multiplying. Because a church that is immature, and I pray that this it would be the case, but a church that is immature isn't worth multiplying. And I pray that it would be the case that we are mature churches living together in God's ways and not our own ways in order that we multiply healthy congregations across our state and across our region. And so that's what drew me as I was thinking about preaching this morning to you here at River City. What, what drew me to the book of Proverbs was the reality that the Proverbs does just this. Because when we get to the New Testament, when you're reading the book of Acts, you see Paul and you see the apostles going out and planting churches, and that's exciting. They're, they're doing the thing, and they're hitting the mark, and they're planting churches, and the gospel's going forward, and all of that is happening. But I would say to you that if they're, if they're hitting the mark with what they're, with they're, with they're, what they're doing in the book of Acts, then the gunpowder and the, the, what, what is needed and what is necessary to actually hit the mark is manufactured all over Scripture, and a lot of it in the Old Testament, specifically in the Proverbs. Planting churches full of people who live according to the wisdom of the world will die of dehydration before they get anywhere near the gates of hell. 
godless men and women will comment about the church in the strip mall, and they say, where did that go? But planting churches full of people who live according to godly wisdom will be fueled to take repeated shots and effective shots at the gates of hell. Unbelieving men and women and boys and girls will be confronted over and over and over and over again with the gospel of Jesus Christ because their neighbors and their friends and their coworkers will give evidence in their life of the transformative power, the freeing goodness of God and godly wisdom that they are free to apply in Christ. And they'll be offering that freedom to those who do not believe. And so, church, this is what I want you to think about this morning. And what sometimes when we start talking about church planting doesn't necessarily ping our radar as church members. And that's what's contained here in these simple five verses in the Proverbs and all of the Proverbs as a whole. That what matters to church planting isn't just about identifying leaders and just about developing a good residency program and about finding the right location and the right building and the right people for the core team, but rather that the church who is doing the planting, or the church is, in our case, that are doing the planting, um, need to be considering our everyday faithfulness, our parenting and our work, the physical stuff and how we steward it, and our time. And yet we want to be obedient to King Jesus in our earthly relationships and our work and with how we steward stuff, but we tend to begin to compartmentalize those ideas. We tend to think to ourselves, what does this have to do with the greater kingdom work going on? But again, a church that applies godly wisdom is a church that will plant churches that apply godly wisdom. And churches that apply godly wisdom will in fact impact their community for the gospel far more than those who ignore it. And so this morning, as we look at these five verses, there are three things, three ideas that are going to guide our time together. And I'm going to kind of say them just in a sentence, and we're going to break them out and sort of build on these ideas together. So the sentence is this, and I'm going to kind of tell you. So one, faithful fathers teach their kids, two, how to live righteously, and three, through working diligently and prudently. Those, are, those three points, ideas, will represent the structure of our time together this morning. So faithful fathers teach their kids, two, how to live righteously, three, through working diligently and prudently. So turn your attention to the, the text this morning. The first thing there is simply this, and this could be a sentence in, in and of itself, right? Faithful fathers teach their kids. Faithful fathers teach their kids. Now, I get that not everyone is a father in this room. Some of you may aspire to be fathers. Some of you may be too young to even be thinking about fatherhood. Um, But some of you maybe should be thinking about fatherhood more than others, and half of you are women, so you're not fathers. (laughs) Verse 1 in this passage operates as the foundation for the, the next four. So if we're looking at this, the first verse, the Proverbs of Solomon, a wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Verses 2 through 5 here are explaining better 
what a wise son looks like and what a foolish son looks like. Now, that's not just limited to these five verses. This is, again, all over the Proverbs. We want to be wise people, not fools. And so uh, the Proverbs takes aim at wisdom and foolishness. But when we read the Proverbs, sometimes we just sort of read them all as individual sayings. But oftentimes, more often than not, I think that there is actually a structure here. There is actually a structure. And in this instance, verse 1 operates as more of a thesis for the next four verses uh, than, than does it stand alone by itself. So these five verses meant to be taken together with uh, verse 1 as the top level. Verse 1 tells us that wise kids make their parents glad and foolish ones make their parents sad. That's the heart of the matter. And Solomon's ordering is important here. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Now, Solomon isn't just taking aim at sons. He's taking aim at fathers as well. Dads, this is an out, outlining. Uh, it's outlining a unique responsibility that we have in our own children's education. This is outlining unique responsibility that we as fathers have in our own children's education because it assumes that parents are actively instructing their children because the setting of the Proverbs is, in fact, Solomon, Solomon teaching his son. I think I count like 13, 14, or 15, somewhere in there, uh, different instances in the first nine chapters of the Proverbs where Solomon tells his son to listen up. He says something like, hear, oh, hear my son, or something like that, or listen to my words. He's telling him to listen. He's telling his son that he needs to take heed of what his father is about to say, which implies that his father's actually saying something to him, and that he's teaching him something. So, fathers are designed to care deeply about what their children are learning in every setting, whether it be at school, whether it be at church, whether they oversee it at every stage. Dad should be asking the question, what is my kid learning in the classroom? When I drop my kid off at River City Kids, what, am I, what, is, what is my kid learning there? You should be asking the question. Not as like a, tell me what you're teaching my kid, but like, but like I, need to take, I need to take interest in this so I can reinforce it in the home. And if it's bad, I can point out why. Dads, our kids must know what is good and right and true and beautiful and honorable and holy. And it starts with us men teaching your kids who God is. Wise dads are happy when their kids act wisely. That's what this says. A wise son makes a glad father, implying again that dads are teaching their kids what wisdom is. But a father who fails to pass on wisdom doesn't just make his child a fool. <laughs> he also burdens his wife. A foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Now, kids are ultimately responsible for the actions. They grow up, they leave your home, they go on to something else. And even the wisest parents find themselves wondering why their kids are acting foolishly. 
But the principle is this. A father who, who fails to pass wisdom to his children also burdens his wife. And a father is a fool when he fails to pass wisdom to his kids and then wonders why his kids are acting foolishly. We say, no one taught me how to be wise and I turned out just fine. Not an effective strategy for parenting. So verse 1 here, again, top level argument from Solomon. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. It introduces to us a wise son who then becomes the subject of verses 2 through 5. And how could we say sons or, or children in general live wisely? Children live wisely through working diligently and prudently, and we'll get there in a moment. But the way that they work diligently and prudently uh, reflects the wisdom of God. And they are to learn the wisdom of God from their, from their parents. This is the way that God designed things and ordered things. This is the way that God sets things up. Wisdom is making use of God-given temporary resources in a way that God tells us to, living according to what He says, leveraging, investing these temporary things here in this realm with eternity in mind. So, again, verses 2 through 5 are going to show us more of how this operates, what a wise son versus a foolish son looks like. So, our first thought, faithful fathers teach their kids and then the second thought, which we'll go to now in verses 2 and 3, is how to live righteously. Faithful fathers teach their kids how to live righteously. And Solomon begins by saying in verse 2 that treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. A while ago, I got an email from a... a a woman in the UK, her name is Agnes, and uh, unfortunately Agnes has a terminal illness, and she told me that she wants to make me uh, the, uh, her investment manager. And she told me that she wanted to wire me 10,500,000 UK pounds, and that's about $13 million, which, yeah, cool, I'll be your investment manager. All I needed to do was send her some really sensitive personal information, and, and then the money would just be wired directly to me. No more questions. Yeah, you, you know these types of emails. You probably have many in your spam folder right now. Solomon is clear here. Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit. Swindling people out of money, stealing it by telling them, give me your sensitive information and I'll wire you some money, does not profit. There's no wisdom in it because God forbids stealing. And not only does God forbid stealing, but what he's doing is saying, trust me. Trust me as the God who created you, who provides for you. You don't need to obtain treasures by wickedness. Rather, you need to trust in the Lord. This is a matter of eternity, Solomon says, because in the second half he says, righteousness delivers from death. 
to live righteously before God, to live according to godly wisdom and God's word is an eternal matter. Foolish sons don't, don't trust the Lord. Rather, they take matters into their own hands and cut corners and swindle people and put things in the fine print when they drop contracts in order that they might get a little bit more off the top. Wise people know that earthly treasure, rather, is given by God and should be used for his purposes and not theirs. So in this, in this verse in particular, we see Jesus very clearly. We see Jesus in this verse very clearly because he is the one who is perfectly righteous. So even with Solomon is writing this, it is righteousness that delivers from death. Jesus Christ was perfectly righteous. Again, wisdom incarnate, the fulfillment of the law, came into the world, kept God's word perfectly. Never at one point did he stumble. Never at one point did he break any of the commands. Jesus is God, the righteousness, we're told, of God. And at the cross, when we trust Jesus, at the cross, his righteousness is granted to us. It's given to us, but his righteousness is given to us for a purpose, and that is to live righteously. It is only those who have received the righteousness of Christ that can live lives of righteousness. And so here, when Solomon says righteousness delivers from death, he didn't have this picture fully in mind, but he knew that the righteousness, righteousness could only come from God. It it couldn't come from the law. It couldn't come from keeping these things. Rather, it had to come from outside. It had to come from a place not within the individual. It is righteousness that delivers from death. When Jesus fed the 5,000, he miraculously fed people with five loaves, with two fish, But he didn't just offer satisfaction for their hunger in that moment. He also then went on to offer them satisfaction for their spiritual hunger. He always used, Jesus that is, always used temporary resources wisely with eternity in mind. Perfectly reflecting his heavenly father. Verse 3 continues the thought here of righteous living. Solomon writes, The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the craving of the wicked. The righteous and the wicked, those who live righteously before the Lord, those who live according to God's word, he makes sure that they're fed. Again, the temptation here is to swindle people out of their money. To go ahead and to cut corners. When you're like, where is my next rent payment coming from? Some of you may be in that, that place this morning. Some of you may be in a place where I have a big medical bill sitting on my desk and I don't know how I'm going to pay it. Those who Solomon calls fools begin to rely on their own ingenuity and creativity to come up with a solution. Those who Solomon calls wise trust in the Lord with all their hearts and lean not on their own understandings. And God 
in his divine providence makes their paths straight. This is a matter of contentedness. Those who live according to God's commands, those who live righteously, find lasting contentedness. Those who break out from underneath God's order of things by swindling and stealing, by looking for their own ways and following their own paths that are crooked rather than God's, they do not find contentedness. In fact, they are never satisfied. Why is this? Maybe you're here even this morning and you're wondering, why is it that I feel so discontent with everything in my life all of the time? Friends, I think there could be a simple answer here, and I think it could come from this passage, that you might be thinking, how could I possibly be content with my life the way that it is? If you ask yourself the question, what am I seeking satisfaction in? What is it that I think will give me satisfaction? Is it something here? Is it something in this earthly, temporary realm that I think will give me satisfaction? If I only could have that one thing, then everything would be fine for the rest of my life. It almost sounds absurd to say it, but we do it so regularly. We think to ourselves, if I could just have X, that house, that car, if I could just have that degree, then I would be content. But it is temporary things satisfy temporarily, and eternal things satisfy eternally. And so to make our lives the aim or the aim of our lives, the acquisition of temporary things for selfish purposes is a foolish, a foolish endeavor. And it ensures, it ensures a life of discontent. To make your aim in life, to live according to God's word, to live righteously is to ensure eternal satisfaction. Now, I've already said it, but I want to say it again because I don't want you walking away thinking, the guy who came and talked at church today told me that I had to do a bunch of stuff. The reality of this passage, again, is that righteousness comes through the person of Jesus Christ alone. So if you're here this morning and you're thinking, I've got to do stuff, you're missing the point of even this passage. These are not things given to you to do, but rather a way in which we must live as those who have received the righteousness of Christ. When Jesus went to that cross, he took your sin upon him and then he imputed or credited to you the righteousness of Christ. And it is in the righteousness of Christ that you can live righteously according to what Solomon writes here in the Proverbs. The righteousness of Christ credited to you and the new life that you have in Christ, the regeneration that comes to you through him has freed you has freed you from your ways, which are not good. He's freed you to please God and to walk uprightly and blamelessly before Him as a clear evidence of His saving work in your life. Temporary things satisfy temporarily. Eternal things satisfy eternally. The fool seeks eternal satisfaction 
in temporary things. Leading him to steal and to swindle, to try and gain treasures by wickedness. While the wise person knows that eternal satisfaction is found only in eternal eternal things, specifically in the person of Jesus Christ. And then the wise person devotes himself to God's ways of using temporary things. Okay, so first two ideas, faithful fathers teach their children. Secondly, how to live righteously. Faithful fathers teach their children how to live righteously through working diligently and prudently. Now, the through here in my sentence is a little ambiguous, but I think that you can take it both ways. You can take it to mean through a father's working diligently and prudently and through uh, working diligently and prudently as a wise son. So, verses 4 and 5, look at those with me. Solomon says, A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. Faithful fathers teach their children how to live righteously through working diligently and prudently. Now we see both of those words, diligent in verse 4 and prudent in verse 5, and it would be good for us to understand what Solomon is saying. He's saying that diligent work reflects the wisdom of God. Verse 4, two types of hands described. Now, hand is just a metaphor for the work. But a slack hand causes poverty. But the hand of the diligent makes rich. Slack means negligent or, or lazy. The diligent hand... Is, in, is, uh, is attentive, it's thoughtful, it's not hasty. It is, the, it is the righteous who are diligent because they know what God has given to them and how to properly take care of it is prescribed by God. So in Genesis, back in Genesis, when God created the world, in chapter 1, verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God gives man his image and then God gives man dominion. But it would be wrong to say that diligence is just hard working. Okay, so I live in part of North Dakota. Maybe this is true of you, maybe it's not. But I live in part of North Dakota where hard work is kind of our religion. When we talk about, when someone says, how's it going? We're like, man, I'm so tired because I've been working so much. And we want everybody to know that we're justified by our hard work. We legitimately want people to think that we're working harder than them, and so we have a contest every time we have a conversation with someone. I do this too all of the time. I fall into it. But diligent work isn't just hard work. Diligent work isn't just hard work. Diligence is hard work done God's way. 
Now, hard work matters. You can read the Proverbs. You have to understand that hard work genuinely matters. But hard work that always has God's ways in mind. Something diligence does not express, though, is the quantity of work. Again, I've been working so much, I'm so tired, is not an indicator of your diligence. Hard work and lots of work are not the same. Again, where I live, if you're, over, if you're not overworking, then you're lazy. But the Bible doesn't talk about diligent work only. It talks about diligent work and diligent rest. And so when we get to ver- ver- verse 4 here in chapter 10, we're also talking not exclusively about work when we get to verses 4 and 5, but we are also talking about Sabbath rest. Solomon knew that the tendency of man would be to not trust God and to blow right through the command to rest. But diligent, diligence here in this passage is referring both to work and to rest. Working in the way that God commands, but also resting in the way that he commands. Psalm 127.2 says, It is vain that you rise up early and go to late, late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. It's vanity that you get up early and go to bed late. Some of you this morning are in fact eating the bread of anxious toil. Even during this time, since we started at 9 a.m., you've been thinking, your brain has been going back and forth to what's on your desk tomorrow when you get to work. You're eating the bread of anxious toil right now when the bread of life is being offered to you right here. Diligent work is work that recognizes how God made things and how work is to be done within that reality and not outside of it. Diligence can be waiting or spacing out the work. Uh, Last summer, uh, we finished our basement. Well, actually, we did a whole... We bought a house in foreclosure, um, redid the whole thing top to bottom. Well, not top. The shingles were done when we bought it. But all the way down to the basement. So I did a lot of framing when we were when we were finishing our basement. And when framing walls, you space the studs out 16 inches on on center. But what's not needed is to fill your wall with studs every 8 inches. It's not necessary. In fact, your electricians and plumbers probably would hate you. It doesn't make sense to say If studs every 16 inches on center are good, then studs every 8 inches on center are better. It doesn't make sense to say that. And yet when we say diligence is hard work and overworking, and if you're not overworking, then you're lazy, that's exactly what we're saying. Diligent work is good, so more work is more diligence, right? Not not the way it works. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus tells a parable of a sower, and he says, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. The seed is sown, but then Jesus says the men go to sleep. 
He says they go to sleep. They don't sit up and fret about what's going to happen to the seed. This is the natural thing to do, assumed by Jesus in the passage. Work and wait. Do it in God's way, not ours. At the heart, again, of diligent work is trust. Do we trust the Lord with our work? The reason we overwork is because we aren't trusting the Lord to produce the results. We're not trusting Him to try to work outside our limits. In Exodus 23, 11, God tells His people to sow the land and to harvest its yield for six years, and then on the seventh, let it lay fallow. Not, don't do anything. Don't plant. Now, for an agrarian culture, that sounds pretty silly. In the wisdom of man, it sounds pretty silly every six years or every seventh year to let it go, not do anything. Can you imagine working for six years and then taking a whole year off? Probably not. Some of you have been in the workforce for a very long time. It seems like a pipe dream. But two things would be required for obedience. Proper planning for the first six years and much larger trust in God's provision than we can possibly imagine. What if years in one through four, things go really well? Good crop, barns are full. Year five, everything falls apart. Year six, nothing comes in. Then what? Then what about year seven? Will you trust the Lord despite plans being disrupted, or will you ignore the commands of the Lord your God and plant in year seven? It is the Lord who does not let his righteous go hungry. It's not you. So the fields lie fallow, even if years one through six fail to produce even everything that we think that we need. The diligent hand prospers in this life because it does things God's way. It rests in God's timing and it works in God's timing. Rejecting slackness or laziness or negligence, but working faithfully and thoughtfully, attentive to how God commands us to work with the things that God provides. The second thing that, that uh, Solomon mentions here in verse 5 is prudence. And if diligence is God's work done in God's way, then prudence is hard work done in God's timing. To be prudent is to look forward to the future, to think about what's coming down the pipeline. Now, I sometimes talk to dads in our congregation about uh, Sunday mornings. When Monday through Friday, your wife is getting the kids ready for school. She's, she's dropping them off. She's taking them to sport, do that sort of thing. When it comes to Saturday night, don't keep your family out late if you plan to worship with God's people on, on Sunday morning. You set yourself up for failure. You open up the fridge and you say, on Sunday morning, when you got to be here at 9 for congregational worship, you say at 8.45, where's the milk? There's no milk. A prudent person, a wise and prudent person, looks for the milk the night before and then realizes, i got to get to Hornbacher's. You guys have Hornbacher's? Hornbacher's? Yeah. That's still here. Yeah. 
When it's time to harvest, Solomon says, the sun harvests. When, he, when, he, when it's time to sleep, he sleeps. The one who is harvesting at the pr- proper time is not sleeping. Sleep here isn't the sleep of the righteous who works diligently and rests diligently. Sleep, in the second half of verse 5, has the idea of the son is unconscious of his surroundings. He who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. He's unconscious of the seasons. It was a little chilly this morning. You all know that fall's coming. You put on a flannel. That's how it works. Attentive to the way of the world and the seasons around him. But the foolish son is so disoriented that he can't make heads or tails of his situation and his surroundings. So the timing of our work matters. We plant in the spring, we harvest in the fall. Whatever it is for you, you recognize that that big product launch is coming up, and so you plan accordingly. You work wisely so that when it comes down to it, you're not scrambling and overworking, failing to be diligent in your work and in your rest. Prudence is hard work done in God's timing. And when we understand the seasons that God has designed in our lives or just the seasons outside, we know that our Creator God through His Word. And when we understand His timing and operate as prudent children, Solomon says, these are wise sons. And again, remember the nature of these verses. Faithful fathers teaching their kids how to live righteously through diligence and prudence in their work. And so, parents, you must teach your kids. Grandparents, you must teach your kids. If you, have, if you have influence in the life of children, you must teach them to live in God's ways and work in God's timing. But even more importantly, or the way in which that will flow down to our children, is to trust the Lord with temporary resources he's given to us to trust the Lord with our work so that we might reflect his wisdom and glorify him. Some people to learn to work outside of God's ways from their parents. If you're a parent in this room and you're not trusting the Lord with your work, that is going to flow to your children. Being negligent or lazy or overworking, ultimately being unattentive to God's directives. Sometimes people learn to work outside of God's timing, trying to produce results that only a certain season can produce. God's wisdom isn't the wisdom of man. We must strive to do all things in his way and in his timing. This brings us to a conclusion, and I want to offer you just a couple of thoughts by way of conclusion through these five verses. I began our time talking about church planning and how we together as congregations, even though we're 100 miles apart, want to be thinking actively about how we can be planting churches in North Dakota and South South Dakota. But the nature of church planting, again, isn't that it's just about your pastor elders who are here identifying leaders and sending them to assessments and equipping them and sending them out. 
When Paul planted churches in the New Testament, and when churches were planted in the New Testament, Paul would write to them, but he didn't give them a bunch of strategies about how to plant more churches. Now, there are some good implications and good principles for us to glean. But the reality is that Paul was primarily interested in reminding the people about the gospel, reminding them about good doctrine, reminding them about being God's ambassadors, the ambassadors of Christ in their communities, and living according to God's ways and not their own. So he gives a lot of instruction about how to live in light of the truth of the gospel. He gives a lot of instruction about what it looks like to be a good husband or a good wife or a good father, godly, righteous, living upright and blameless in your work. This is how Paul approaches the churches in the New Testament. Those churches look much like you do, River City. Those churches look much like you do in the fact that you guys are not likely going to be always, maybe, but not, not all, all of you would be on the front line of planting churches. But the way that we plant churches is by recognizing Paul's emphases in these ways, recognizing that he does care about a deep, impacted life, a life that is impacted by the truth of the gospel. Because it's the gospel that transforms a group of people who, who first even intellectually began to agree with the propositional truth that Jesus Christ was perfectly righteous, came into the world to die for sinners and to impute his righteousness to those same people. But over time, the church matures into recognizing what godly wisdom is and recognizing that Jesus Christ, through forgiveness of sin, and through imputed righteousness now grants freedom to all who make up an expression of the local church in order that they might live in godly wisdom. It's the gospel that transforms a group of people into a church, not just a collection of individuals, but into a people purchased for his own possession. It's the difference between thinking about godly wisdom and living wisely. But again, you're not being called to buckle down and get wise. That'll last about five minutes. What you're being called to do is to rely and trust in Jesus Christ. You're being called by Solomon here and by Jesus Christ himself through this passage to trust the Lord, not yourself, and to rely on him to make your path straight. And so church planning is about churches having a culture of godliness, not just here on Sunday morning, not just here when you gather together on Sunday morning or hit somebody's living room for a community group, but church planning is about churches having a culture of godliness not only in the body life, but also in the home life, in the work life, and a culture of godliness that is in fact worth multiplying. It is a fool's errand for your pastors and elders to de devote tons of time and energy to planting churches when everyday faithfulness is lacking in their own con congregations. Parents modeling righteous living for their kids. Church members conducting their work in ways that are God's ways. Applying the Proverbs and godly wisdom is loading the cannons and taking aim at the gates of hell.
That, it's, it's that easy. If you're like, I don't even know what to do. Faithful fathers teaching their children how to live righteously through working diligently and prudently. It's simple. It's not necessarily easy, but it certainly is simple. My prayer for you then, River City Church, this morning, is the same as my prayer for Buffalo City Church. Hopefully we can continue to partner together, that we would grow in love, that we would grow in love for the wisdom of God laid out in the Proverbs, that we would long to see the gospel go forward in North Dakota and South Dakota. Minnesota's right there. We'll count them. We want to see the gospel take root and transform lives and transform communities. And that we wouldn't dismiss our own everyday faithfulness, applying godly wisdom as having deep and abiding, lasting impact in our communities. This is my prayer for you. This is my prayer for our churches that we would love the gospel, that we would see that it has freed us to live in godly wisdom. Let me pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for your word. And we thank you that when we come together as God's people in worship, we can come together expectantly, expecting that you would uh, transform us by the renewing of our minds that we as your people can know wisdom because we know the person of Jesus Christ. God, it's not lost on us. It's not lost on us. May it not be lost on us that we, that we are frail, fickle people who think far too highly of our own ways. God, would you, through the power of your spirit, humble us to think well, to think wisely about the way that we live. God, we thank you for Jesus Christ, for his righteousness imputed to us, the righteousness that brings eternal life to us. God, through his righteousness, would you compel us now to live lives of righteousness? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.